0: Hello and welcome to the 2020 iteration of Leaves' Festival of Writing and Music, Leaves On Air. This festival would usually take place at Dunamay's Arts Centre and other venues across Port Leash and County Leash. Current circumstances, however, forced a rethink about how we could best bring featured writers, musicians and our audiences together in a safe, engaging and entertaining way. Together with Leash Arts Office, we are delighted to now present a series of podcasts featuring our guest musician... Our guest writers in conversation with festival curator Dermot Bulger. These were recorded recently over Zoom. For more details, see leavesfestival.ie and you can find us on all social media, Spotify and other podcast hosts. Leaves on Air is funded by the Arts Office Leash County Council and produced and presented by Dunamay's Arts Centre.
1: Welcome to the Leaves on Air podcast series. My name is Dermot Bulger. My guest in this episode is the writer Carlo Geveler, talking about his new book, Tales We Tell Ourselves. In it, he responds to the current pandemic by going back almost 700 years to what could be called the first novel ever written, The Decameron. This contains 100 stories told to each other by a group of seven young women and three young men sheltering in a villa outside Florence to escape the Black Death afflicting that city. Conceived during the pandemic of 1348, that the Cameron ranges from the erotic to the tragic. Gebler's reworking focuses on the book's revolutionary premise, that suffering in a pandemic may rob us of our humanity, but fiction is one way we can get it back. Carlo Gebler was born in Dublin in 1954 to parents who are both writers, the novelists Edna O'Brien and Ernest Gebler. He started his career in television and made several documentaries for Channel 4 before turning to fiction and memoir. His many novels include The Dead Eight. This reconstructed a famous miscarriage of justice when, in 1940, Harry Gleeson, a farm manager in Tipperary, was framed and hung for the murder of an unmarried neighbour, Marl McCarty, who had been a good mother to seven children by seven different local men. Other recent books include The Projectionist, a biography of his father, Ernest Gabler, and The Innocent of Falkland Road, a novel set in 1960s London of his childhood. A member of a stoner, he's married with five children and has lived in Enniskillen since 1989. If fiction is one despite from a pandemic, then music is another. To introduce my talk with Carlo, I have chosen two single jigs, Child of My Heart, and Is It the Priest You Want? played by the great Waterford Piper, David Power, on his album, The 18 Maloney, available from his website, davidpowerup.com. It's a pleasure a pleasure to uh, have you along for the uh, Leaves on Air podcast. And uh, the book we're going to talk about, we, we talk about so many of your books because you've been a uh, novelist, you've been a memoirist, you've been a travel writer. Uh, and the new book is your response to the current pandemic we're in. And mm-hmm. your response to the pandemic has been to go back almost 700 years to a remote secluded villa outside Florence uh, to a group of seven young women and, and three young men who uh, keep each other's spirits up by telling uh, over the course of 10 days uh, 100 stories in what could perhaps be described as the first modern novel, the first novel of all time, The Decameron. Uh, How did you decide to actually uh, approach
2: the the current lockdown by revisiting this book? I knew about The Decameron. I'd, I'd read The Decameron. I was aware that it was this canonical collection of 100 stories of incredible variety, funny stories, Bordy stories, cruel stories, mythic stories, fairy tale like stories. But mainly I knew about the Decameron as something that was like an aquifer. It was a great underground water source, and the water had trickled and nourished all subsequent literature. It was a kind of urtext.
1: It and didn't it probably, actually, but, And it wasn't the uh, because it the laws of copyright were a tad obscure back in the day. When, when they <laughs> were.
2: In, in those helped. days, you could do anything you wanted. So then when the pandemic started, and I noticed, I was told by Edward Hegel, the publisher, that two books in the English language had sold out. The warehouses were out of them.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Albert Camus' The Plague and um, Giovanni Boccaccio's De Cameron. Mm-hmm. I thought, huh. And I got it down off the shelf and I discovered that it wasn't just a source from which people had taken an appropriated material, it being itself a book that appropriated material that existed, but it was also a response to the suffering that Giovanni Boccaccio believed pandemics, because he was writing during the Black Plague, inflicted on the psyche. He said they caused the psyche to contract. And therefore, he produced a text of stories which would reverse the process and allow the psyche to recover. And you say that that the book has a revolutionary premise,
1: not only The Decameron, but also uh, Tales Be Tell, which is your, your version of, of, of an editor. I think it's a twenty eight stories from The Decameron?
2: It's 27 stories from The Decameron and a 28th, which is told in an aside. Because in the book, the 10... Re, um, people, the seven women and the three yeah. men, they also talk to each other. And yeah. in one of their asides, somebody tells this strange story about, um, well, a, a young man's loss of religious fidelity when he meets a beautiful group of women for the first time in his life. Yeah, yeah. Actually, the loss of religious fidelity is pretty common in the camera because what's interesting <laughs>
1: is, is that the author, it writes in the local vernacular, it's not mm. written in Latin, it's not written in Greek, it, 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 and he's, he's like the ruddy dial of his time in that, it's sort of, it, 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 it sort of coarse at times, it, it, it's profane at times, it, it is, the stories get darker and darker. And the plots involve, like, uh, they mock the clergy and the lust read the clergy, the tensions in Italian society between the new wealthy commercial class and the noble families who, who felt they were beneath them, uh, and the pearls and adventures of travelling merchants. So it, it is, a, mm. it, it sort of, it, it captures a lot of what's going on in Italian society at a time.
2: It certainly is counter-cultural, and it certainly is critical, and mm. it certainly is subversive. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's not only, it's absolutely revolutionary. For instance, one of the stories is about two young men and they're keep they quite religious and they go to church and they hear about this place called heaven and this place called hell and this place called purgatory, but no one can tell them anything about it. So they make a deal. Whoever dies first will come back and say what it's like. It happens. One of them comes back and he tells the living man that the things they're worrying about, fornicating with the mother of their godchildren, nobody gives a toss about that in, in Purgatory or Hell. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's all just nonsense. In other words, the story says, go go ahead, sin.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, and this is the 13th century. 14th, I mean, this is medieval. It's extraordinary. This, this made the cameraman
1: uh, very, very popular among, among the merchant class. And it reminded me of uh, somebody who, you and I both knew uh, Francis Stewart, the mm-hmm. who who had a, a long and strange life. And very early on, um, edited a magazine called Tomorrow, which was primarily a, a front for Yeats to actually, uh, because Yeats wrote a lot of Tomorrow, but but used these two young men as a front. And Francis used to, uh, after a glass of wine, he 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 would. It, well, it was a great he wasn't a boastful man, but, but he was saying with great pride that he heard that tomorrow he used to get passed around the reading room and the smoking room in Midlands commercial hotels by traveling mm. salesmen that, 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 that uh, had a slight whiff of sulfur about it. And I mm. the Cameron also had this sort of, uh, sort of slightly underground feel to it.
2: It was, um, yes, it was. I mean, it was um, Savonarola burnt it in Florence. I mean, it was regarded as a, as a despicable text by um, serious theologians. The church didn't go so far as to ban it. Mm-hmm. Pet- Petrarch, the humanist poet who was Boccaccio's friend, disapproved of it. Mm-hmm. Among other reasons, he disapproved of it because it was written in the vernacular, because it, was, it, it replicated how people s- actually spoke and interacted. But Boccaccio did not... Um, withdraw his work from set from circulation Mm -hmm. in fact he copied it out again Mm -hmm. and this is a 900 page book Mm -hmm. and he refined it and improved it and it's that second copy that is the basis for Mm -hmm. the editions that circulate now because because the the premise of the book isn't necessarily
1: revolutionary or it is the premise of the book is that um, suffering in a pandemic may rob us of our humanity, but that fiction is one way that we can get it back and that we can actually sort of, uh, even when, when confined uh, to a villa as his characters are, are confined to our homes as we currently are, that the imagination can still set us free. And I, I, and I think that premise holds true as much today as it did 667 years ago.
2: Yes, fiction can set you free or it can repair the the damage it can, you know, the it can reknit the damaged and unravelled psyche, but it isn't just uh, what we think of the kind of fiction that we think of as restorative, fabula fiction, fantasy fiction, and so on. It isn't that. Isn't the only kind of fiction that does the job. What Boccaccio says is that fiction must be plausible, and if it has adultery, if it has homosexuality, if it has all those things that um, systems and religious opinion tries to suppress, if it has these truths, these unwanted truths about human behavior reflected, that will do the job of healing. You can't heal with fiction that boulderizes the truth.
1: And it also has great compassion because if anyone was oppressed at the time, it was women and they were deprived of free speech and social liberty. They were confined to their homes and they were often lovesick. And he actually, he writes very movingly about women and he compares, contrast their life with men who can hunt and fish and have all that, mm. sense, of, that sense of power. And, and, and that
2: imbalance is in there and he finds ways to subvert it. He does. And also he has uh, a narrative he has many narratives that show women within the domestic setting exercising enormous compassion intelligence guile cunning and many many other virtues
1: mm-hmm.
2: he's and, and they also come over as people they're not paragons
1: absolutely yeah yeah, yeah 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 and
2: that again is part of his his practice you know he insists that for work to be plausible it must reflect lived experience the reader, when they go to the text, must see something of the life they have themselves lived reflected on the page.
1: Mm.
2: And fiction, unless it does that, isn't going to fly.
1: So after 667 years, can you give us a a sneak preview of the new version of The Decameron, uh, which is
2: Tales We Tell Ourselves, published by New Ireland Books and Why did you pick this story to read? I think we should, in the um, interest of Glasnost, we should reveal that the actual title is yours, not mine. It was you, sir, who came up with Tales We Tell Ourselves. The story I'm going to read the beginning of is The Husband Man. It's tale, in this collection, tale eight. I'm just going to read three or four minutes. Mm -hmm. The convent was a lovely stone-built building with a roof of red tiles that sat in the middle of a manicured estate. I've lost my place. That sat in the middle, I'll start again. The convent was a lovely stone-built building with a roof of red tiles that sat in the middle of a manicured estate with copses, meadows, an orchard, a carp pond, chicken runs, wood stores, a grain barn, cattle buyers, a kitchen garden, and grounds full of flowers, fruit trees, and gravel paths. The order comprised of eight nuns, known as Sisters, and an abbess. To manage the estate, there was a steward, and below him, a husbandman, Nuto, who grew the vegetables, chopped the wood, and fetched the water. Nuto was a big, gormless, red faced, hollow eyed, big eared fellow, lazy, spoilt, vain. He didn't mind the work as the nunnery's husbandman but he was exasperated by the way the abbess and the sisters kept checking on him, which of course they had to do because he didn't follow their instructions. Nuto didn't understand this. He also didn't think he was paid enough, but then the Nutos of this world always have an inflated idea of their value. Eventually, everything came to a head in Nuto's mind. He could no longer tolerate being given instructions, nor could he work for what he believed was a pittance. Enough was enough. He went to the steward pay me off what I'm owed, he said, at the week's end, and at the week's end, I'm off. The steward tried to persuade Nuto that he was an idiot, that he would bitterly regret going, and that he should stay, but Nuto wouldn't hear of it. So at the end of the week, the steward paid him off, and Nuto left the nunnery and his job and walked back to his village. Once home, one of the first people Nuto bumped into was Mazzetto da Lamporeccio, a handsome, hardy peasant, and at that moment, jobless. We haven't had sight of you in ages, Mazzetto said to Nuto. Nuto explained he'd been working in a nunnery and he outlined what the job had entailed. Then he said he'd quit. I had to give it up, he said. They were only paying me a pittance and the job barely kept me in shoes. Mazetto looked at Nuto's feet. He was wearing clogs. They looked new and comfortable. He looked at his own feet. He was in sandals that were frayed and worn. What were the sisters like? Mazetto asked. Wouldn't leave me alone, said Nuto. Always on my back. Do this. Don't do that. I would be at work in the kitchen garden. Put this here, one would say. Put that there, another would say. And then a third would snatch the hoe from my hand and say, that is not as it should be done, do it like this. So imagine that, to put up with that, being bossed about endlessly, plus they didn't pay me enough. <laughs> In a situation like that, what's a fellow to do? He's going to walk, isn't he? And that's exactly what I did. I went to the steward and said, I'm off. He wasn't happy. You're letting us down, he said, but I wasn't going to be swayed by that sort of talk. I'd made up my mind. I was going. And then, right when I was leaving, do you know what the steward said to me? He said, if you know anyone, Nuto, who would fit in here, can you send them to me? And you know what I said, because I'm a clever old fox, I said, absolutely. If I find someone who's suitable, I'll send them to you. Don't you worry, you can trust me. Of course, I have no intention of doing any such thing. I'm not going to send someone to help them or him out. Why would I send someone will then have to put up with all that carry on from the sisters that I had to put up with for very little money. I'm not going to point anyone towards that wretched place. While he'd been listening, Mazzetto had been seized by the idea that the nunnery might be perfect for him. The work didn't seem too bad, and working with the nuns would suit him very nicely. However, having just listened to Nuto, he thought it best to agree with him, rather than asking For an introduction to the steward. And the story goes on to describe how Mazzetto goes to the nunnery and he obtains entry by pretending to be deaf and dumb because he assumes they will assume he is, um, in uh, their eyes, not husband material, not virile. I think you can work out the rest.
1: (laughs) The story is. these aren't a hundred random stories because they get darker every day, like on on, on day four, they're about tragic and toward love, and day five, they're about lovers who have gruesome accidents. And and it's almost as if they use the stories over the 10 days to slowly come through the pandemic, uh, Mm -hmm. so that that the feelings that the plague has disabled within them uh, Mm -hmm. are gradually released by, by fiction. Is that how the book basically works?
2: It's, I mean, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's how the, that, that's how the Decameron works. Um, it, it, the original published version, yeah. all 856 or 900 pages of it. Yeah. I have kept the sequencing. I've, I've picked 27 stories plus one that's in an aside. Mm-hmm. I've maintained the order in which they're sequenced in the book. I haven't fiddled around with that. So the stories in my version, Tales We Tell Ourselves, and in the original, follow the same ramp, if you like. Mm -hmm. They descend into darkness. And then at the very end, there is some hope offered by Boccaccio in the final story. And the hope he offers, what he says is that if human beings can find within themselves the capacity to be generous and good and reasonable, then there's hope for us. But the only hope for us is within us. Nothing.
1: How, how did you find the process of entering the mind of somebody who 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 died um, six uh, six hundred and fifty years ago? In terms of you know, when you actually when you write, I know every time an actor. This was one of my plays. They, they do it differently and they bring something new to it. And every time somebody translates something, they bring something different. And every time somebody tells a story, they bring something different. And, and like, did more and more of Karla Ghebla come into the stories as you began to rewrite them? Or, 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 or did you feel I there's I no, need to diverge in ways?
2: I didn't alter the plots, really. Although if I did alter them, I would... There, there are notes that indicate that I did. Mm-hmm. Boccaccio uses a lot of summary narrative, the kind that we're familiar with in a fairy story. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, there was a princess and her father, blah blah etc. And I've tried to derogate from that as much as possible and resort to dialogue and sort of modern narrative techniques, which Mm -hmm. are quicker than summary narrative. But to answer your question, my main impression working on the original medieval material was that I was seeing a mind trying to work out for itself those narrative principles that are second nature to us how to run two stories in parallel how to create character how to create tension his mm-hmm. brain is actually trying to mm-hmm. to to do all of those things that fiction went on to do with greater and greater finesse but he was trying to do it first and what is, i is under- what i did was Sorry, Carlo. But I interrupted you, there, Carlo, in my eagerness to speak to you. I, um, what I did, in my opinion, was to follow the tendency he was going in, and to uh, take it further. Mm-hmm. In other words, I simply elaborated on his developing narrative principles. Mm-hmm.
1: And he deals with the was it part of the fact that he came from a merchant class that was coming up that 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 that, 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 that made it uh different from previous books and as he deals with very very frank and brutal real politic of life of actually of of the actual issue as against he doesn't cloak anything uh, in that uh, in a way they say maybe somebody from a noble background would because nobility do like to smooth
2: over the actual um, amount of peasants that they, they walk upon. That's absolutely right. He did have a period early in his life when he was at the court of Robert the Wise in Naples and he was a kind of court poet and he was Fated, and he was submerged in and absorbed into kind of high medieval life, mm-hmm. and um, that all came to an end. His family's fort, his family's fortunes dwindled due to his father's bankruptcy, and he was thrown in with the merchant class. Mm-hmm. And the merchant class, amongst who- amongst whom he then had to move in, uh, from his late twenties onwards. What they valued was cunning and ingenuity and smartness and. They were beady and quick, and they had no time for deference and no time for authority. And he valued that kind of quickness of thought and quickness of mind. But he also saw violence. He saw what power did when it was exercised. And his stories indicate that he is no longer a supporter of those at the top who might be very courtly and very educated, and um, supporters of culture, but are also able, because they have absolute power, to exercise incredible authority and violence. Mm -hmm. He, he, He separates himself from that. I mean, he really does show, his stories are very frank about violence, about the torture of people who've been arrested for crimes, the brutality of the criminal justice system, and what happens when soldiers at the end of a siege enter a city and the things that they do to the people in the city. He could be more violent, obviously. I mean, there is, you do sometimes sense him holding back slightly, but he really isn't interested in um, making us believe that the world just consists of dragons and princesses and noble deeds and fine words. He has some dragons and princesses and noble deeds and fine words. He, they have a place. Romance has a place, but only a limited place. You have to know the truth about life, and the writer's duty is to communicate that truth.
1: In terms of the writer's duty, I mean, this is a remarkable book, because it's remarkably readable. It's remarkably uh, contemporary, even though it is, it is based on a book that is, that is centuries old. And it's also remarkably quickly written because it is a very, very immediate response. And is, is it a part of your background as the, the son of two novelists who grew up with the sound of typewriters to be able to simply focus your mind and produce something,
2: uh, a book of this magnitude so quickly? Um, my, yes, I grew up with the sound of, my mother is a writer called Edna O'Brien and my father was a writer called Ernest Gabler and one wrote in the day and one wrote at night. So one was never far from the sound of the tap, tap, tap of the Remington. I am a person who believes that there's no such thing as, um, plumber's block or electrician's block and therefore... Writers really can't have any truck with writer's block either. You've just got to get on and do it. I mean, that was the example that I was presented by my parents. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And they. the the, the other thing to be said is is that the the creation of narrative, when one has templates that one can use, Mm -hmm. the templates offered by Boccaccio, is a far easier thing than when one is starting with a blank page. I was beginning with something. I'd been helped along the road quite a lot. There were characters, there were situations, and so on. And to take this material, which in turn Boccaccio had taken from the air, from the ether, and to repurpose and reconfigure it, involved work and was done quickly because I wanted to get the book done quickly. I started on May the 19th or May the 17th. I started making notes and I started writing on May the 19th. And I delivered the first draft on June the 29th. Which is, so, I always think when people ask me, what is the cure
1: for, uh, block, I always say poverty, uh, because it is, it, is, it, is, it is a very useful thing to, thing to push you on. But I think that if you look at your, uh, very big, at your parents' work, your mother's early books, uh, you know, they drew upon our own life. Your father's most famous book was a total work of fiction based on the voyage of the Mayflower. If I if memory serves me right? So you actually have this thing of actually somebody using personal material and somebody using total invention. And is it important for you as a writer and for all writers to constantly reinvent yourself? Because you, you have in your last novel is set in nineteen sixties London. Your, your novel for a, a remarkable novel. Um, um, the Dead Eight, is about a famous miscarriage of justice in, Count- in County Tipperary, not far from leash uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in 1940 when Harry Gleeson was uh, framed and and executed for, for, for the murder of, of a neighbour. You've done Aesop's fables, you've done memoirs and travel and and, it, and also a biography of, of your father. Is it the case of actually sort of just coming at things as a storyteller from every direction and keeping it fresh in that way?
2: Yes, I mean, I'll answer the question in two parts. One, the poverty um, matter. When the pandemic stroke struck, my um, I realised that all the 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 way in which one of the ways, or the the one mainstay of my income, went Mm -hmm. because writers nowadays, because writing is very close to stand up, earn money from personal appearances, and that all that was going to go, and um, the uh, the, the offer to do this book came up, I seized it with both hands. I'm a, I'm a jobbing writer, I'm on Grub Street. If somebody offers to pay me money, I think, I write. That's what I do. That was the example of my parents. They produced manuscripts, posted them away, and money came back in the post. A lesson once learned, never forgotten. But to answer the second part, to, to give you the second half of my answer, the, the, the alteration of one's focus, the doing of different kinds of, the making of different kinds of work is essential to maintaining sanity. And you also aren't going to live as a working writer unless you're protean. You you simply can't be L.P. Hartley anymore. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, one of those kinds of, I say L.P. Hartley because he wrote books like The Go-Between, he did some reviewing and it enabled him to rent a villa in Venice for three yeah. months every year. He and made the, a good living. gentleman of letters. A gentleman of letters. Uh, gentleman of letters. Yeah, That's yeah. over. And so instead of your villa in Venice,
1: you actually, uh, I don't know if you can still do it in this pandemic, but, you've, but for many years you have taught in prison. And has that been a fascinating experience? I remember you once saying, that never expect, better of anyone in jail, expect war. So one of the characters in your book, the, mm. the Wingardley's Tales. And has, has that been a... a, a Has that been an inspiration? Has that been uh, a chore? Has that been something that
2: has been mind-opening for you? Um, The the prisons here are closed currently because of COVID, so I had to stop just after St. Patrick's Day, but I'll be going back in again. Um, The prison are quite clear that they they wish me to go. Has it been um, of benefit to me working in prisons for 30 years? I'd say more than benefit. It's mm-hmm. probably been the, it's not probably been, it has definitely been my education. I have learnt really everything that I know from talking to prisoners,
3: mm-hmm.
2: everything important that I need to know. I've also learnt a great deal about society and how it functions. And yes, I've learnt, I've learnt everything in prison, mm-hmm. really, that I know.
1: Uh, and the whole thing of looking, but was that one of the things that drew you to? We haven't got a great time to go into it, but but I'd love to talk also because of the connection to uh, Leach and Tipperary, uh, the uh, miscarriage of justice of, of Harry Gleeson, which is which was a, 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 something that, an open secret at the time mm. that, uh, that, that 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 Harry Gleeson hadn't actually uh, killed. Uh, his neighbor, but, but that it was a very, very useful person to be sacrificed to mm. a scandal in the town, which, which almost sounds like a, a really bad tale into the Cameron, a really bad mm. tale the Cameron. It could be a
2: Decameron esque story. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't the person, of course, to. Um, um, many people before I came to write that novel had articulated mm-hmm. the idea or the certainty that Gleason had been fitted up. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do any original work. I wrote the novel based on on a great deal of work by other people.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, where there were certain gaps, I was then able to use fiction to, to bridge the mm-hmm. gap, so to speak, and offer a hypothetical. Mm-hmm. This is probably what happened.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Why was I attracted to that story? It is... I had worked with Patrick Maguire, who was one of the Maguire Seven. So these were seven people who in London had been fitted up by the Guildford police for the manufacture of the bombs used by the IRA in Guilford during the IRA mainland bombing campaign in the 70s. And the book was primarily about Patrick and his suffering, how being sent to prison for an offence was such a violation of natural justice, it almost destroyed him. Mm -hmm. So it was a memoir type thing. It concentrated on the effect. But the, and of course the book touched on the way the the, um, fitting up had been finessed, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't about that specifically. And I suddenly became really interested. You know, if you want to fit someone up and send them to prison, Mm -hmm. there have to be a lot of moving parts it isn't that one policeman sits somewhere and goes oh right let's send this person down it's a collective act and i thought it the gleason case really showed how it was a collective act not only with the guards and the criminal justice system involved but the local people because the woman he had supposedly murdered was a woman who had a um personal relationships sexual relationships with a vast number of local men and children by seven different local men
1: and, and had left
2: little clues to each man in their name in their names and that's and so everybody in the community knew this mm-hmm. it was everybody
3: mm-hmm.
2: the the district justice knew it the doctors knew it the school teachers knew it the priest knew it the dogs in the street knew it but they the Irish Code of omerta came in. We're not going to discuss this. It's too shaming.
1: And again, Harry Gleeson is, is landless, and so he has no status within that sort of world. And, yep. and I think that makes the book so harrowing that he's such a genuinely decent and slightly dim character who is just totally bewildered. He has no notion of the forces Mm. around them that are going to use him, uh, Mm. get rid of a murder and actually sort of hopefully put a lid on scandal.
2: I mean, he's a, you know, he's like a 19th century spalpeen. He's a guy who who goes and works on his uncle's farm for no salary Mm -hmm. for all his life. If he wants to buy fags, he has to go and borrow a quid or get a quid from his uncle, who was very good to him, by the way, his uncle and aunt.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but the deal was that when they died, he'd get the land. But until they died, he'd he basically, he was a peon. Yeah. He did earn, he was a very good musician, a beautiful violin player, fiddle player, and was well known for dancing and for charm and for for, for sort of being like a very nice man. Mm. The woman who he allegedly murdered, who he didn't murder, he also used to he used to supply her with wood that he'd cut on the farm. It was kind of like he wasn't meant to, but everyone looked the other way. He used to give her food, he used to give her potatoes. other people also did that yeah. so he was involved with her in a charitable way. He knew exactly what she was up to mm-hmm. um, but he just he wasn't the person who got a shotgun and shot her in the face mm-hmm. he just he just didn't do it, and, and has now been you know,
1: been formally, unofficially pardoned by the Irish state. We, 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 which is a great blessing, and which which wasn't. It wasn't just the book that did that, but it was part no. of it was part of of an raising awareness of that issue. To come back to yourself, Carlo, and we're we're, we're finishing up the uh, podcast, and it's been a pleasure talking to you about the book. And, and I hope the book gets read by as many people as possible. The um, uh, the tales we tell ourselves, because it is very much a tale of our time while being a tale of, of pastimes and how we survived past, past pandemics. As somebody who uh, learned, earned a lot of your know, living by, by doing all kinds of things that you know cannot do, what are you working on now and what's next for Carla Uh I, I
2: am teaching virtually mm-hmm. at Trinity College, where I work. And that is actually, do you know what? It's, it's, it's fine. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's probably more than fine. It's actually quite good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's more work than face-to-face, but it's, it's very good. I am doing this. Mm-hmm. I've written, but my main literary activity is I have written a book about, I've written, I have pretended to be Antigone,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the uh, classical Greek heroine, and I have pretended as Antigone to write a biography of Oedipus, mm-hmm. her father mm-hmm. stroke brother. So I've written a book called The Late King of Thebes, which is mm-hmm. Antigone's account of her, her father's life. And, and again,
1: is this a way of just keeping it fresh for you, of actually just simply throwing thrown yourself headlong into
2: another imaginative universe? I, the, the, I uh, was very... I am extremely depressed about the state of the world. Mm-hmm. Why do people vote for Mr. Trump? Why did people vote to leave the the European Union but they did and the great thing about the oedipus story which is what antigone articulates is that people are simultaneously fated and the um arbiter of their own destiny people do things that are utterly predictable which they can't not do and at the same time choose to do them
3: mm-hmm.
2: so people couldn't not vote to leave the the european union and yet they voted to they mm-hmm. couldn't not vote for trump and yet they voted for mm-hmm. it's this curious mix we're both free and unfree so that's what the book the book comes out of my sense of that but of course it's it's just a story it's not and a polemic
1: it is polemic. It's, it's again an historical story and a contemporary story i mean i i remember carlo you as a filmmaker, I remember yes. you a documentary maker a long time ago, and it's been a great pleasure to follow you uh, <laughs> as a writer through all kinds of mediums and all kinds of forms and always surprising and always uh, erudite. And, and always beautifully written and perfectly written. You, at an early age, you, you learned the value of a good sentence. And uh, thank I, you. I hope that uh, Tales, We Tell Ourselves, becomes the modern the camera. I hope it gets read by a huge number of people. And I, I hope you every success in all of your future works. As always, it's a great pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much for taking part in the Leaves On Air podcast.
2: Mr. Bolger, may the gods smile on you thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. For more, see leavesfestival.ie or dunamaze.ie. Leaves On Air is funded by the Arts Office Leash County Council and produced and presented by Dunamaze Arts Centre. We look forward to presenting further podcasts over the months ahead. Dunamaze On Air will showcase artists and performers we are sure you love to hear from and learn more about. See dunamaze.ie for details.